0: This is the Uncommon Sense podcast for three Triple R FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham join me to talk about federal politics. Then, British author and journalist Johan Hari joined me in the studio to talk about his book, *Chasing the Scream: The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs*. Then, Anne Mann philosopher and author, joined me in the studio to talk about her contribution to the book Dangerous Ideas About Mothers. Anne Mann wrote a chapter entitled Mothers and the Quest for Social Justice, From the Universal Breadwinner to the Universal Caregiver Regime. You are tuned in to 3 FM. this is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins, and I'm really excited to have with me in the studio once more, Ben Altham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me this morning to talk federal politics. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. Good morning.
1: I'm excited too.
0: You're really excited?
1: I am. I haven't even had a coffee and I'm excited.
0: You just, yeah. like That's how excited it's, I am. I can't see it on your face, but I can hear it in your voice. <laughs>
1: Well, oh, it's radio.
0: It's an auditory medium. It is. I know. You're put, You're directing all your energy to the right part. Absolutely. Thank focused. God. Yeah. I think I'm wasting all my energy with my great facial expressions, which that's why I wouldn't be on TV. It's like so expressive. <laughs> yeah. So expressive.
1: Yeah, you got to keep a deadpan face on TV. You do. It's tough for us radio people when it we really get on is. TV. Yeah,
0: we get too excited. Yeah. Um Ben. The the latest news or the biggest news that hit yesterday, which I was a little bit shocked by, was the sacking of ABC managing director Michelle Guthrie. They she was officially uh, her em- employment contract, which they, she was halfway through, was a five year appointment. Um, she was officially sacked by the board, the ABC board, which. Um, clearly had some level of uh, disagreement or uh, certainly not a close relationship presumably in terms of the reasons why they've sacked Michelle Guthrie.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Michelle Guthrie, the uh, the controversial managing director of the ABC, she exits the Ultimo building. and
0: Let's sh- explain why she's controversial, Ben, for anyone who wasn't paying attention uh, when she got appointed because
1: yeah, there was sure. a
0: little bit of kind of surprise um, that she came from the private sector, for example.
1: Guthrie was a, a controversial appointment, an appointment of the previous board, it should be noted, and the previous chair, Jim Spiegelman. Uh-huh. Um, And she was controversial for a couple of reasons, and I think mainly because of her lack of experience in broadcasting. So she came to the top job at the ABC, the national public broadcaster, as many people have been saying, the most important cultural institution in the country, really with no experience in broadcasting. Um, She'd worked at Google. She'd had a a very successful career at Google, particularly in the Asia-Pacific, and then she'd worked at News Limited or News Corporation, uh, neither of which were really broadcasting public media Mm roles Uh, so she came to the ABC at a time obviously of tumultuous change in the media the media landscape's changing very rapidly and the ABC while it has a lot of advantages as a public broadcaster also faces a lot of challenges not least of which are a very hostile political environment currently for public broadcasting in general and for the ABC in particular and the Abbott and Turnbull and now the Morrison governments have always uh, been critical of the ABC and they have never really liked the ABC either philosophically or in the particular when it comes to the reporting of the ABC on their governments.
0: Mm. There has been a huge amount of political tension that always is revealed, certainly at estimates, Senate estimates time, uh, when the managing director must present uh, to a group of senators and be quizzed and at some points it's almost like a bit of a cross-examination in a, in a trial. It can get quite heated
1: Yes, absolutely. Senate estimates is always heated and particularly when uh, key public institutions come in uh, to to face estimates. And Guthrie has been criticised for her Senate estimates appearances. Uh, She tended to rely on senior ABC staff to help her out. She used to bring Alan Sunderland, who is a sort of head of editorial content in, to help her out. Mm. You know, some people have said that that showed a, a weakness or a lack of... Uh, being across her brief as the editor of chief of the, the ABC... I think what was really driving her unpopularity within the ABC was the amount of organisational change that was going on within the ABC in her tenure so all sorts of restructuring was going on inside the ABC she tried to dynamite all of the rusted on silos inside the organisation, she tried to restructure it around content silos, um, tried to make it platform agnostic which is a terrible jargon word but basically meant that people would be making content for radio or TV or online and it wouldn't matter. Mm. It was about being a content specialist rather than being a platform specialist. Yes. Um, and, of course, she took over the ABC at a time of significant funding cuts. So, lots and lots of people have been shoved out the door. There have been mass rounds of redundancies at the ABC. And, of course, that's never going to make anyone happy. So, this combination of wrenching organisational change, uh, funding cuts, Uh, a hostile political environment. Many ABC staff felt that she didn't speak up Mm. for the ABC and for public broadcasting. Uh, So, you know, it's fair to say she wasn't particularly popular within the broadcaster. But is that the reason why the board moved against her? I don't think so. I think this is a a more old-fashioned story of uh, internal political tensions between herself and Justin Milne, the chairman of the ABC board. And it looks as though she's fallen out with Justin Milne. And, of course, if you fall out with the chairman of the board, then you are in trouble as the CEO of any organisation.
0: Very in trouble. And um, I note that uh, in Margaret Simon's uh, piece yesterday on Mianjin about this, she was talking about how the ABC has suggested it was her leadership style and her way of managing, which was somewhat hands-off I mean she was at points uh not appearing at really important meetings that the chairman would then uh take over and almost step in for Michelle Guthrie or at least that's how it's been reported um which does go to show that uh you know it is probably more about personal politics and personal uh conduct the way one manages an an organization versus uh the actual management itself, the actual actions taken that were clearly taken before her time or at least some of those actions. She didn't really break from the mould of staff cuts, but she certainly cut middle management, um, some huge amounts of management that actually wasn't really needed. Um, But that, that area that you mentioned about changing um, to really like content topics rather than, you know, having radio segments, TV segments and, um, you know, online segments. I think that, that is a very controversial move for any media organisation nowadays.
1: Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, it shows to some degree her lack of understanding of public broadcasting and the deeply ingrained culture mm. within the ABC now, ABC so insiders say that there's less and less of that old ABC culture left as so many experienced journalists and broadcasters have walked out the door. But there's no doubt that a big organisation like the ABC, that's you know steeped in a long organisational culture, 80 years old as an organisation, you know, it, in a way, it, it, it has kind of antibodies to this kind of change. You know, the the, the organisation itself will will. Uh, conduct an immune defense against uh, attempts to change it radically and and any manager who wants to change an organization needs to understand that and I don't think she brought ABC stuff with her Mm. on her journey if you like (laughs) Uh, and there were of course like plenty of embarrassing leaks over the years about her inability to understand even just basic ideas about journalism Uh, once telling an ABC meeting that there should be positive stories written about children on Nauru. Um, The recent change attempts with this uh, fictional character called Larry who is going to help everyone talk more openly and honestly within the ABC workforce, you know. So um, I think a clash of cultures to some degree. Mm. But I think to give her her due, she did understand one big thing about the ABC, which is it needs to become a digital-first organisation. It needs to actually move to make digital the foundation, the foundation, the fundamental aspect of what the ABC delivers in terms of its services. And I think she was right there. Mm. Um, so you know, who, who replaces her now becomes the big issue along with why did the board sack her? I don't think we've had an adequate explanation from Justin Milne. It's not good enough, in my opinion, for a billion-dollar public institution for the chairman simply to say we didn't like her style, therefore we've sacked her. There's no succession plan in place. They said they're going to go and start looking for a new CEO now. Mm. Uh, Well, good luck with that. (laughs) Uh, So it's a pretty tough job, whoever takes on the gig. Um, and, And so I think you know, all eyes will now turn on who will the replacement be.
0: Yes, and, I mean, you are setting a precedent when uh, a newly appointed CEO two and a half years into their uh, appointment is given the chop. Like, it needs to be substantially you know severe in terms of the cause for something like that to happen because it's setting a precedent and it certainly does make any other uh, potential talented people a bit wary of taking a job that is really difficult politically difficult
1: absolutely anyone who would want to take on this job needs to be a hardened campaigner a seasoned political warrior Mm. you know and that's where their predecessor Mark Scott was so effective. He was such an effective lobbyist. He was so good behind doors and as a public advocate of the ABC. And he always had a sure foot politically. Yeah. And I think that's where Guthrie really stumbled. She was unable really to navigate the very difficult political environment that the ABC finds itself in. Mm.
0: And Guthrie said she's considering her legal options. I mean, that doesn't bode well in terms of, um, you know, this being an ongoing issue.
1: Oh, yeah, surely the board will have to just pay out her contract, which is rumoured to be $900,000 a year. So Mm. it'll be an expensive decision by the board. Essentially. That's what happens when you sack CEOs. They normally have pretty watertight contracts, so, um, yeah, th- that's going to cost them. But I think the bigger issue really is the future of public broadcasting within our democracy. It's never been more important to have well-funded, highly respected, trustworthy public broadcasting at a time when social media is dominating and indeed distorting our political environment. I think, you know, it's never been more important for the ABC to be strong. Mm. And unfortunately, of course, uh, under a conservative government, there's been repeated attacks, including funding attacks, on the ABC. Yeah, people have been talking about the $83 million cut to the ABC's budget that was announced in last budget, but the cumulative cuts to the ABC since Tony Abbott took office are about 400 million. There's something like a 1,000 ABC staff have left since 2013. So very, very significant cuts Mm. to the organisation.
0: Yeah, and they're sure to have impacts in terms of content and any kind of. And
1: they are having impacts. And we heard recently that the ABC is struggling to even get enough people into its newsrooms to get TV bulletins out. So significant cuts are really mm. starting to bite now.
0: It is very concerning, given that the ABC is one of the most trusted institutions in Australia still, um, that it is being undermined in terms of its ability to function and to provide what Australians expect when they pay their taxes from their public broadcaster?
1: Well, the ABC is viscerally hated by the right, particularly mm. by the right conservative columnist, columnists and commentators who work for News Corporation because, of course, the ABC is an effective competitor uh, against effective. News Corporation. Very effective. Yes. Um, it's the mo- as, you, as you point out, it's the most trusted institution in Australia. Mm. Uh, so um, it has some implacable enemies on the right of politics. Um, and, you know, when it comes to Labor, Labor's been a bit of a fair-weather friend for the ABC. It's been pretty good at times in supporting the ABC, but Labor's also felt the sting of the ABC's coverage at, at various points. And, and Labor governments too have attacked the ABC's funding over the years. So it's never easy being the public broadcaster because if you do your job properly, then you're going to start annoying people in power.
0: Mm, exactly. And, Ben, in terms of one of the great um, things that the ABC offers is its investigative journalism. It's seen more recently to partner with other uh, organisations like um, The Age, for example, in some of their um, investigations into corporate behaviour. But one of the recent investigations was into the aged care sector, which we mentioned last week. And um, submissions are now open to the community to put Give input into what they think the terms of reference should be for this royal commission. Um, where are we at at the moment in terms of that discussion, and is there any kind of toing and froing as to um, what should happen and what the terms of reference might be?
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, uh, the second episode of Four Corners double special on aged care was shown last night. Some very graphic footage was shown of um, aged care residents being abused, basically being assaulted by by um, nurses and, and aged care attendants. Um, pretty confronting footage indeed. Um, the government's scrambling to... to damage control basically. Aged Care Minister Ken Wyatt is trying to um, do the best he can to put a a positive spin on this. It's uh, going to be hard for him to do that. Uh, Four Corners has uncovered fundamental failings in the regulatory system really and Mm. and the the toothlessness of the, the watchdog, the aged care regulator has been revealed. I think all too simply. I mean, you know, as we've seen with the Banking Royal Commission, you know, we have a, seem to have a problem with regulators actually regulating in this country. They don't seem to want to do their job, and that certainly seems to be the case with the aged care regulator, where they sit. They were doing things like announcing beforehand when they were coming in on inspections, so they weren't really they weren't really inspections without notice. Mm. they were inspections where they told people we're going to come and inspect on this day. Um, And also where, you know, people making complaints simply weren't having their complaints followed up. So, yeah, I think there's a massive, a long way to go here on on the aged care issue because it's a fundamental problem in our society that we're no closer to solving. And the Royal Commission will get going and I think it will uncover all sorts of horrible things because... Um, even from what we've seen from Four Corners across two episodes, really just scratching the surface here.
0: Yes, and it will be interesting, uh, particularly to see the types of witnesses they call because, you know, we're talking about some people who are vulnerable and who are in ill health, um, some who are not, but, you know, that does raise challenges, significant challenges in terms of being able to, at in some ways, have um, first-person testimony, particularly those who are suffering from uh, illnesses such as dementia.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as the Four Corners footage showed, really a lot of this is happening in, you know, behind closed mm-hmm. doors. So it, without this hidden footage, the hidden cameras, hidden cameras yeah. that, that's getting this footage, we wouldn't know about a lot of these these assaults so you know Ken Wyatt's open apparently to, to putting cameras into aged care uh, homes to, to see if they they would make a difference but I think if you if you're needing cameras to make sure that your residents are not being abused that yeah. shows just how bad the problem is in the first place
0: exactly and it does infringe on um, people's privacy particularly we know that um, for example I had Fiona Patton on um, the show and she was talking about the fact that you know very many of these residents can't live with with their doors open they're they're in single beds they're basically you know at the end of their lives not living like you know adults with dignity they're living like patients in a hospice
1: well that, that, yeah absolutely all worse mm. so yeah look it it's terrible and I, I really you know i don't have a good answer to this problem uh, let's let's see what the investigation sh- shows but There have been a number of inquiries into the aged care sector over the years and they've all come up with pretty much the same findings, which Mm. are the privatised nature of the the healthcare policy settings mean that there's an incentive for the aged care providers who are for profit to do as little as possible, basically, to provide the least care they can get away with um, in order to make money and that's just capitalism. So I think, you know... Uh, privatising this fundamental aspect of the care in our society was probably always going to be a bad idea and and so it's now being shown to be.
0: Mm. And I would encourage everyone if you have, um, you know, for example, parents who are in aged care and you would like to make a submission, you should. I mean, people should actually raise these issues and concerns directly with politicians and have it on the record if they they feel strongly about this issue so that people know just how much of a problem it is so that politicians um, get an understanding of the majority view, um, because that certainly does affect what politicians decide in terms of what will happen during this Royal Commission.
1: Absolutely. Make your views known to your local parliamentarian. They mm, do listen.
0: They definitely um, do.
1: You know, but I think that one last thing I'll say about this stuff is that I think it it unveils a really shocking prejudice in our society, which is the endemic ageism within our society. Mm. And I think that was really confronting looking at those two Four Corners episodes together, which is just the way in which we don't really treat elderly people in our society as full human beings. Yes. And I, I think for me as a... Well, now a middle-aged man, I think that was that was probably the most shocking aspect of it—the the way in which this kind of treatment has become normalised, mm. where it, it, it's really an open secret.
0: Yes, it's like they're almost um, brought back to the the initial part of the circle of life, which is being treated like children at times and being shouted at or spoken down to um, because of some of their issues. Well, I
1: think worse than children. I mean, we mm. we would not allow children to be treated the way that we treat old people in our society. Abs- that's true.
0: Yeah, it is a huge issue, Ben. I hope we can continue to shine a light on this because I've heard from many of um, our Triple R listeners that this is something that they're really concerned about. So uh, I hear you, everyone. Um, and I want to also raise some of the issues that have come up recently, um, particularly around Labor and their policy platforms which are emerging every day, it appears as if they're almost running an early election campaign with some announceables that seem to um, in some cases wedge the government into awkward positions One example is the gender pay gap um, whereby Labor wants uh, companies with over a thousand employees to have to disclose just how big their gender pay gap is um, and that certainly is A reform that's occurred in the UK Um, that was introduced by a Tory government, so it's not um, unprecedented to institute a reform like that. But then we've seen Kelly O'Dwyer, the minister for women, have to come out and say this would be an unfair regulatory burden on business, which of course makes the Liberals look unfriendly to women.
1: Well, yeah, as we've discussed on this show in recent weeks, maybe the Liberals are unfriendly to women. Yeah. So <laughs> I don't think there's a Hence any...
0: this political strategy is so pretty clever.
1: I, I, I obviously do think there is politics involved here, but I think mm. you're being a little bit unfair on Labor because Labor's had gender policies for a long time now. and, and Yes, been... but
0: the timing of the announcement, Ben, is rather opportune.
1: I think they have been opportunistic with rolling out some of these things, um, but I think they've emerged from a fairly long policy process. And you've got a number of senior women in leadership roles in the ALP, like Tanya Plibersek and Penny mm. Wong, for whom these issues are deeply held. So, yep,
0: Jenny McAllister as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Jenny McAllister is actually a bit of a bit of a mover and shaker in the factional makeup of the ALP, and has done some really good work behind the scenes. So she's she she's one to watch, has. actually. She's quite a clever senator. Um, so, apart from this, we've also had an announcement on superannuation for women, where the, uh, the government will look to top up the superannuation for lower income women um, in order to address some of the really shocking gap in superannuation balances for women re- at retirement.
0: Well, that's a good point. Now that I did mention Jenny McAllister, she actually ran and chaired a Senate inquiry into um, women's retiring incomes and the fact that they are retiring on such low uh, incomes that many of them end up becoming impoverished and homeless.
1: Absolutely. We know that uh, uh, older women are the fastest growing group of homelessness in our society. In our society Uh, and a lot of that is driven directly by obviously by uh, financial issues and impoverishment so Mm. uh, it's a big problem and of course we know one of the reasons is that women spend time out of the workforce caring for children caring for family and they're not in the workforce getting superannuation so that's one of the reasons why they have such an imbalance they also get paid less than men across the workforce so there's a lot of reform here for labour to address and I, for one, welcome it. I think it's a good move. I think there are good policies and and there should be more done on this area.
0: Well, there should. And I think it's a bit of a misnomer to say that it would be an unfair regulatory burden. Um, The Liberal Party, you know, during Tony Abbott's era, were really seeking to destroy the Workplace Gender Equality Agency, which already requires companies to report on the leadership, um, the gender balance and the leadership of their companies, among many other... Uh, important markers in terms of policies that promote gender equality, and I do know that they have been providing um, guidelines in order to provide gender pay audits, and and they do actually require um, companies to conduct these audits. It's becoming just general practice that all of these companies should be auditing their pay and making sure that men and women are paid equally when it comes to like for like roles, where there are equal levels of uh, competence and experience and that's where a huge gap does exist Um, and certainly there are a whole range of other factors in the gender pay gap but it is very disappointing to see that uh, they would use the red tape argument which is really such a hollow argument.
1: Well, you know, I think it's it's very difficult, I think, for someone like Kelly O'Dwyer to uh, to navigate this area because, you know, on the one hand, she's a working mum who's also a cabinet minister, so we should applaud her achievement. On the other hand, she's a minister in a government that's been pretty hostile to women's issues really for its entirety. So um, it's not easy. I don't really buy the red tape argument either, Amy. Mm. Um, it I would imagine that their HR department could actually calculate this stuff pretty easily, over a 1,000 people. Um, and indeed, most of those big companies actually already have pretty sophisticated uh, gender awareness, gender parity policies. Uh, certainly NAB, for example, the bank uh, that Kelly O'Dwyer used to work for, uh, has you know these kind of things. You've yep. got the male champions of change, whatever you think about those guys. Um,
0: well, a lot of them have actually published their pay gaps and let their – uh, employees know exactly what the pay gaps were, and then some of them have remedied those pay gaps and uh, provided back pay.
1: Yeah, it's good. It's a good thing, and uh, you know, and and the more. The more transparency we have, the, the more we'll know about the problem and exactly. hopefully the more we'll be able to fix it. But uh, let's be totally frank here. Um, these kind of things are only band-aids towards a bigger issue, which is the power of the patriarchy, the ingrained social and cultural norms and values within our society, which do value men more highly than women. So until we start to change those big picture issues, um, this kind of stuff, while important and positive uh, is not going to change the fundamental structures underpinning the inequality.
0: Exactly. And um, that is really an important point. One of the ways that we see um, the patriarchy and that ingrained nature is um, family violence, violence against women in particular. Um, And certainly the COAG meeting has been cancelled, but um, the government has announced they will go on and actually still have this uh, family violence summit that they were planning to do with all the states. I think that's at least the minimum the federal government should be doing given their lack of action in this area compared with their some of their state counterparts.
1: Yeah, um, the coalition government's been missing in action on, on Uh, family violence really and some would even say pandering to one nation which is running an uh, almost the opposite line basically Mm. running a a kind of alt-right the males are uh, getting beaten up on kind of line (laughs) so there's been there's been a lot of sort of uh, winking and nudging and dog whistling politics around you know the family courts for example Mm. uh, which has seen Um, by some in the Liberal Party to be too friendly to women. So, I mean, this is a minefield. So, look... I think what's interesting, by the way, about the COAG meeting being cancelled yeah. um, is just shows how disorganised the Morrison government still is, transitioning over from Turnbull. They really don't have any policies on the go. They really don't mm. know what they're doing, really. And, and to cancel the top-level meeting of all of the governments in Australia, I think, shows their disorganisation. Last week in Parliament, they ran out of things to debate. They ran out of legislation to discuss on the floor of the Senate. You know, and And that shows just how disorganised they are, they don't actually have a legislative agenda. Morrison is going around making policy on the run and a good example is the school's funding package announced late last week. Yes, yeah, so I'm handed, glad
0: you've mentioned this, Ben.
1: Yeah, well, we just handed, I think, something like $5 billion to the independent and Catholic school systems.
0: Who've been making a great deal of noise about the fact that they feel they have been unfairly treated in the short term in terms of the transition to this Gonski plan.
1: Yep, absolutely. The Catholic school system in particular has been aggressively campaigning, in fact, making robocalls and making direct campaigns to marginal seat voters about Catholic school funding. Uh, If you talk to independent experts on education funding, they'll tell you that the Catholic school system gets plenty of money and particularly the wealthiest schools within the Catholic system and what this is really all about is just getting more money off the government and of course they have now um, so it shows, I think, why the funding wars in the school system will never end, because uh, the people who are fighting them are still winning them. <laughs> so
0: exactly, you know, the um, loudest people win.
1: The squeaky wheel gets the oil, and quite a lot of oil it is in this case too. Um, you know, and of course, where is the money not going? It's not going to public, public schools. schools. So of mm. this announcement, not a cent goes to public education, which of course has outraged the teachers' unions and a lot of the independent lobby well, not the independent schools lobby, but the people who look at education policy from an independent perspective have been pretty disappointed by this announcement because there's really no policy justification for it. It's completely a political fix.
0: Exactly. And there is a quite large fund in the billions... That excludes public schools as well in this education reform, which I That's put in right. quote That's right.
1: New marks. Education Minister, Dan Tien has announced a $1.2 billion – well, it's really a slush fund. Mm-hmm. You know, It's a fund that um, schools can apply for, but public schools will be explicitly excluded from that fund. And, of course, people are asking, why would that be? Why would you exclude public education, which on any measure is the neediest aspect of our school system? Well, again, it's all about the politics. It's about pandering to coalition voters, particularly in the base of the Liberal Party who send their, their kids to independent and Catholic schools. It's so
0: disappointing because really the whole point of government is to fund public institutions. Our taxes are to go to public institutions.
1: Well, some Seems would say like that Amy. Pretty damn Some, some would say that, uh, <laughs> but many in the coalition would disagree with you. Of course, they frame this issue around school choice, uh, an argument I've always found pretty threadbare. Of course, mm. uh, anyone can choose to send their their kids to any school. Uh, the choice here is whether the government is going to fund that choice uh, to the tune of billions and billions of dollars a year. Uh, but in the Australian system, of course, the federal government does have the primary responsibility for funding the non-public schools. That's always been the way, really, back since the Menzies government. So there's some kind of policy continuity. Yet, but really it goes back to John Howard, who mm. was pretty assiduous in giving lots and lots of handouts to the independent and Catholic school sector. And he saw that really as a vote winner. And I think that's exactly what Scott Morrison and Dan Tien are trying to do here.
0: Yes, but it's money we don't really have and that would be better directed to other things.
1: Oh, there's no argument that the money would be better directed towards the schools that need it the most. Exactly. And that, of course, was the whole intention of the Gonski reforms. Whether or not we still even have a Gonski system after this is very much open for debate. Simon Birmingham, who was the previous education minister, was pretty strong on trying to make sure that the the new package would be needs-based. And, of course, this is moving quite radically away from any kind of idea of funding for need...
0: Exactly. Ben, it's been great speaking to you as usual and um, I can't wait to pick this up again with you next week.
1: Yes, so one thing I said last week that I would do was I'd go and try and find out why Labor voted for the TPP. TPP. Uh, That's right. I've done a little bit of investigation there, but I'll keep working on that and maybe we can talk about that next week. Good
0: idea. I do know that there were some leaks uh, regarding the caucus, the Labor caucus party room. It was
1: was quite fiercely debated in the Labor caucus. And so
0: it should have been indeed indeed um but the result is extremely disappointing look
1: i'll see if i can even get on the phone to jason Clare, and we'll see if we can get it from the horse's mouth
0: yeah well i i really do not understand this at all from (laughs) any logical perspective it makes
1: no sense from my initial investigation it was voted on on factional lines so the right Ah. of the party backs the tpp against the left but i'm interested to know why
0: great well we'll we'll let's pick that up at the start of next week and do a really big um look at that because it does have huge implications and you know actually implications we may not even be aware of now absolutely thank you very much ben for joining me thank you amy that was ben eltham the national affairs correspondent for new matilda who regularly joins me to talk about federal politics You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. And you're listening to 3 FM in Melbourne. This is Uncommon Sense with Amy Mullins and I'm absolutely delighted to have with me in the studio author and journalist Johan Hari who has written a couple of pretty big books uh, so far. First of all was Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs and the second of which we discussed a bit earlier in the year was Lost Connections, Uncovering the Real Causes of Depression and the Unexpected Solutions. Hi there, Johan, and welcome.
2: I'm so happy to be back with you, Amy. You are my favourite Australian interviewer. Oh,
0: thank you. Well, you're you can my favourite. You check. I don't say that to anyone else either. So,
2: <laughs> I'm not just saying this to suck up. Right. That's
0: hilarious. I love it. No, I don't think you would ever suck up. Um, I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate your writing. I think when I was reading through Chasing the Scream, which is what will be Focusing on, to begin with, and obviously bring in some of the themes of Lost Connection, which are very vital to this issue. But when I was reading it, it struck me how great a storyteller you are uh, in terms of painting a picture of this war on drugs, not only how it has played out at the moment for all the different players involved, but also how it began. And it was really surprising to me, the origins of this story. Not so surprising to me that it began in America but I'd really love to hear more about the bad guy in the story who, you know, has, has driven the plot for, for probably the first at least one third of the book is uh, a man called Harry Anslinger.
2: Yeah, if, if most people, if we stopped them in the streets of Melbourne and we said to them, why were drugs banned in the first place? they would assume, I think, what I assumed, which is they were banned for the reasons people would give now. If you ask someone in the street why are drugs banned, they'd probably say, well, we don't want kids to use drugs, we don't want people to become addicted. It was fascinating to discover that's not why drugs were banned across the world. And, and I opened the book um, with, the st- w- uh, with a scene that I think some people at first think, well, why is a book about the war on drugs opening like this? In 1939, in a hotel in midtown Manhattan, Billie Holiday, the great jazz singer, walked onto a stage... And for the first time, she sang a song called Strange Fruit. A lot of your listeners will know it. It's a song against lynching. It's the idea that in the South, there's a strange fruit that hangs from the trees, which is, of course, the bodies of murdered African-American men. And that night, Billie Holiday received a warning from the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was run by a man called Harry Anslinger, And it basically said, stop singing this song. And that sounds weird, right? Why would a narcotics bureau be telling Billie Holiday what she can and can't sing. Um, so the Federal Bureau of Narcotics was, um, w- was a department that had originally been the Department of Alcohol Prohibition. And a man, a government bureaucrat called Harry Anslinger, takes over that department just as alcohol prohibition is falling apart. And he wants to keep his department going. So he, he effectively invents the modern war on drugs. And he builds it around two groups he really hates – One is African-Americans, Latinos, and Chinese people. Um, He's uh, such an extreme racist that even at the time, his senator said he was so racist he should have to resign because he used the N-word so often in official memos. Um, And the other group he really hated was people with addiction problems. And to him, Billie Holiday is a symbol of everything he hates, right? Mm -hmm. She's an African-American woman resisting white supremacy. And she's uh, got a heroin addiction because she was horrifically raped as a child. In fact, prostituted as a child. And she was trying to deal with the grief and the pain of that by anesthetizing herself. And when... Harry Anslinger tells her to stop singing this song. Billie Holiday effectively said, screw you, I'm a free person, I'll sing whatever I damn well please. And that's when he resolves to destroy her. He, he hated employing African Americans, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to follow Billie Holiday around. So he employed a guy called Jimmy Fletcher to track her everywhere she went. And Billie Holiday was so amazing that Jimmy Fletcher fell in love with her. And his whole life he felt really ashamed of what he did. He arrests her. She's put on trial. The trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday, and Billie Holiday said that's how it damn well felt. She's sent to prison for two years, but the cruelest thing is what happens next. When she got out, at that time, you needed a cabaret performer's license to perform anywhere where alcohol was served. They make sure she doesn't get it. They take away singing from Billie Holiday. Can you imagine a crueler thing? In that situation, of course, she relapses. She she has very hard um, alcohol and heroin problems. She, she goes... At one point, she collapses in New York. She's taken to hospital. The first hospital won't even take her because she's got an addiction problem. The second hospital will. Um, and, and, and on her way into the hospital, she says to one of her friends, Maylee Dufty, um, that the narcotics agents were going to kill her in the hospital. Don't let them. She was right. Um, I spoke to the last surviving person who'd been in that hospital room. They chained. Even though she was diagnosed in the hospital with quite advanced cancer, they handcuff her to the hospital bed. They... Um, they don't let her friends in to see her. They take away everything she had. Um, she starts to go into withdrawal because she doesn't have an heroin in the hospital. And her friend, Maylee, and withdrawal is quite dangerous if you're physically weak she was with cancer. Maely, her friend, manages to insist that she's given methadone. She starts to physically recover and then the narcotics agents cut off the methadone and she dies the next day. And to me, this story tells us so much about what the drug war is about. It's always been a pretext. You, look, you can't enforce the drug laws. Half of all Australians have broken the drug laws. You can't put half of your country in prison, right? Uh, so what is it? when is it used? It's used to crack down on the groups we want to persecute anyway. Why are Aboriginal Australians hugely disproportionately uh, imprisoned and arrested for drug uh, so-called drug offences, for example. So th- the, the drug war has always been about this from the start. It's actually always made addiction worse, like it did with Billie Holiday. Uh, I think this tells us so much about the drug war. And the other thing I'll just say quickly about that is, mm. I think it also tells us something about resistance to the drug war. You know, Billie Holiday never stopped singing that song, no matter what they did to her. She would go to the parts of the Deep South where you didn't need a license. She would sing it. People would throw bottles at her. She never stopped, right? Billie Holiday never stopped being addicted. Um, she, she, in this culture, we tend to only tell one heroic story about people with addiction problems, which is mm-hmm. that they stop using drugs. And that is indeed a heroic story for many people. Um, but, you know, Billie Holiday never stopped. And she was still a hero. And she still did amazing things. And she still inspires people all over the world every day.
0: Yes, and that was um, one of the stories that was shocking. I was a massive fan, still am, of Billie Holiday and I had absolutely no idea of the personal struggles that she had because her voice and the way she presents is so defiant and so confident and you just possibly couldn't see on the surface what's happening. And what really struck me was that as a child, she essentially brought herself up. I mean, she really didn't have that loving, supporting, caring environment around her. She was already behind in terms of having any chance at life at the beginning.
2: Yeah, I I thought about this a lot when I was tracking down people who knew Billie Holiday and going through all the archives about this. And I thought about her the other day when... um, when Aretha Franklin died and Barack Obama said in his tribute to Aretha Franklin something like, in Aretha Franklin's voice you can hear all the joy and all the pain of American history vibrating. I think that's true of Billie Holiday as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. And Johan, let's take a step back a bit as well in terms of the access to drugs that Americans had before we've started this war on drugs, before um, Harry gets on his crusade. There was a really quite an ease of access to at least low dose or mild versions of these drugs that they then banned, such as heroin, wasn't it? Yeah, there?
2: It's, it's interesting because this is something that was really important to me for kind of personal reason. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not, not being able to. And I didn't understand why then because I was too young. But as I got older, I realized we had addiction in my family. And so when I started researching the book about, God, eight years ago now, seven or eight years ago, I I was really concerned about the people I loved and I, and I was trying to think about how I could help them. So for the book I ended up going on this big journey all over the world. I didn't realise how big it would be at the start. I ended up going over 30,000 miles. I wanted to sit with people whose lives have been affected by the war on drugs and the alternatives to the war on drugs in all sorts of ways. From a transgender crack dealer in Brooklyn to a, a hitman for the deadliest Mexican drug cartel to a scientist who spends a lot of time seeing if mongooses like to eat hallucinogens. Um, <laughs> and and I, learned, I learned lots of things but I was trying to think a lot about, well, what we're doing clearly isn't working. But I was thinking about what are the alternatives. So I went to the places that pursued the alternatives, like Portugal where they decriminalised all drugs, Switzerland where they legalised heroin. But I was also thinking, well, what was the situation before we banned drugs? And exactly as you say, the, the until just over 100 years ago, opiates were sold in pharmacies most popular way of consuming opiates was something called mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup um, which does indeed sound soothing yeah um, the uh, co- I mean coca-cola has that name for a reason it contained uh, coca uh, which of course is what cocaine is made out of um, there's a whole um, there was a whole array of legal products and there were some problems associated with them it's important to say um, but what's interesting to see is when drugs were banned, the problems massively went up. Um, Firstly, there were far more deaths, because if you're taking a contaminated... Mm. Product sold by criminals—that's going to be more dangerous. Pill testing is the, the what's happened here at the weekend is a, a very good illustration of that. Um, uh, uh, an illegal product is much more dangerous than a legal product. Of course, drugs don't vanish when you ban them; they're just transferred to armed criminal gangs, mm. um, and that causes a whole array of problems. There's violence between the criminal gangs. There's there's a whole battery of problems that are suddenly born in that moment when when Anslinger champions the, the banning of drugs.
0: Yes and I guess the point there is that not only was the dosage controlled but as you said the quality of the drug was controlled because it was through a pharmacy, it was through legal means and nowadays you wouldn't really, I'm guessing, be able to verify just what is in the different drugs people are taking to such a strong degree and have confidence in what you're taking.
2: Absolutely, everything is made more dangerous when something is controlled by criminals we can't send health and safety inspectors into the <laughs> no. like the bowels of whoever's smuggling the cocaine into Australia, right?
0: No, we can't, no. Um, and I'd like to talk a bit about the types of racial motivations that were mixed up in all of this because certainly it seemed, you just mentioned there, um, the types of marginalised groups that were vilified and um, used really to say that these drugs need to be banned – like they were talking about examples that were clearly not um, how they've been portrayed. They were about, you know, the use of marijuana, for example, was the first uh, example, I believe, wasn't it? Yeah,
2: the use of, It was kind of bleakly hilarious going through all these files that Harry Anslinger had. So he would say to his agents all over the United States, send me stories about what was really happening with cannabis. And so he and he and he only would reward people who sent him the most extreme stories so you know there was a, a, um, a boy called when Anslinger was making the case for banning cannabis and he really championed it there was one case in particular he massively championed and kind of spread out through Hearst newspapers which were like the kind of Fox News of the day there was in Florida there was a, a young man called Victor Laikata who hacked his family to death with an axe and Anslinger said this is what will happen when you use cannabis actually it was revealed years later this, this boy hadn't even used cannabis. Um, the, the But the, some of the stories are kind of hilarious. So he would... Um, <laughs> a lot of his agents would go to sit in jazz clubs and they would transcribe the jazz lyrics and they seemed to think that they were literal. So, for example, there's a song um, called That Ocean Man when he says... Um, the lyric is, when he gets the notion he thinks he can walk across the ocean. So the agent goes, people using cannabis believe they can walk on water. This will cause mass drowning across the United oh States. Gosh. You know, these were the stories. Well, there's one where he said, uh, you know, so when someone uses cannabis, um, five seconds will feel like they last 10,000 years. That was a pretty good one. It's like, wow, that'd be oh, worth wow. trying if it had that effect, right? Although it's interesting, you know, to think about how removed from reality the drug debate remains. Yes. Yeah. You know, last, the first time I was here in Australia in 2015, Tony Abbott was unfortunately the Prime Minister. And Tony Abbott made a statement, just in passing, he was talking about ICE, in which he said, um, I, I think this is how he put it, ICE gives you superhuman strength, he said. I thought, and it's incredible, no one in the room laughed, no one in the room says, what do you mean, Prime Minister? Yes. If there was in fact a drug that made humans superhuman that would be something really worth investigating, right? But it's an extraordinary thing that the drug debate can be so removed from reality. Or think about what um, the Premier of New South Wales said at the weekend, you know. The people who died at that music festival Mm. would be alive if they'd had pill testing, right? Yes. Almost certainly. Everywhere where pill testing happens happens in Britain, happens in the Netherlands, they always find some contaminated pills... And the people always throw them away. And if they'd taken them, they would have been badly injured or died. Mm. Um, and, and your Premier said, um, not your Premier, but the Premier of New South Wales said, um, there's no such thing as a safe drug. This just encourages drug taking. To me, that's like saying, uh, there's no such thing as a safe car. Let's not have seatbelts and airbags, right? It's, it's a bizarre logic that she would not apply mm. to any other situation in life. There's no such thing as a safe Big Mac. It'll make you fat, right? No. Should, we, should we not have any food inspectors? Yeah, it's it's a bizarre um, logic.
0: It is. And one of the people I did interview a few months ago was Daniel Shamowitz, who's a plant biologist. And he raised the fact that, you know, our brains have cannabinoid receptors. And so therefore, when you take uh, marijuana, for example, that's why it has an effect. It also means that because you have those receptors in there, your brain also produces its own cannabinoids Mm. in a small amount. So they're actually already, to some extent, in our bodies.
2: And everyone knows, you know, one. there's a phrase that... Australia has a slightly better drug debate than than some places, although there's still a lot of problems. But one thing i really urge people to stop using is the phrase drugs and alcohol, as if alcohol is not a drug, Mm, right? We all know, I think, spreading the insights we have from alcohol across other drugs really helps us, right? So think about... And this goes to actually one of the things that most profoundly affected me that I learned in the research for my book, Chasing the Scream, that let's think about Everyone listening to this show knows if you go into a pub here in Melbourne tonight and you look around you, the vast majority of people drinking alcohol will be doing it just to have a good time, right? To unwind at the end of the day, to get the courage to flirt with someone, whatever it is, yeah. right? And we also know there will be some people there who will have an alcohol problem, who need our love and support, not punishment and shame. Um, and and what I was trying to think about is with both alcohol and other drugs, why is it that some people get some people like and clean, some people like love most develop this terrible problem and other people don't Mm. and actually when I spent a lot of time with the scientists who worked in this field it was quite startling to realize I had actually deeply misunderstood the addiction I had seen in front of me so if you'd asked me when I started doing the research for the book what causes for example heroin addiction which was close to me I would have looked at you like you were stupid and I would have said well, the clues in the name, right? Heroin is obviously yes. ca- heroin addiction is obviously caused by heroin. Um, we've been told this story for a hundred years. It originates with Anslinger um, and just before him, actually, um, and it's become part of our common sense. So we think if we kidnapped the next twenty people to walk past the Triple R studios and, like a villain in a horror film, we injected them all with heroin every day for a month. At the end of that month, they'd all be heroin addicts for a simple reason. There are chemical hooks in heroin that their bodies would start to desperately physically need. Um, and they'd have this incredible physical hunger for the drug. Mm. And that's what addiction is, right? That's what I believed. That's why we call it being hooked, right? Chemical hooks. Um, first thing that alerted me to fact saying not right about that is when it was explained to me, in Britain, if you step out into the street and you get hit by a truck, God forbid, you'll, you'll, you'll be taken to hospital and you'll be given a lot of a drug called diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin, right? It's much better heroin than you're going to score on the streets because it's medically pure. Mm. If, um, if you break up in Britain, you're, you're given that diamorphine for quite long periods of time. If any of your listeners, and I'm sure lots of them do, have a British grandmother who's had a hip replacement operation, your grandmother's taken a lot of heroin. If what we think is right, that addiction is just caused by the exposure to the chemical hooks, what should be happening to all these people in hospital in Britain? significant numbers of them should be trying to score on the streets when they leave. This never happens, right? Mm. It's been studied carefully. Said, this is so weird. When I learned it, I thought, how can this be right? I couldn't understand it. I, I frankly didn't believe it for a long time. Yes. And, and I only began to understand it when I went to Vancouver and met an incredible man called Professor Bruce Alexander, who's done an experiment that has really transformed how we think about addiction across the world. So Professor Alexander explained to me, this theory of addiction we have that it's caused by the chemical hooks comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They're really simple experiments. Your listeners could try them at home if they feel a little bit sadistic. You take a rat and you put it in a cage and you give it two water bottles. One is just water and the other is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drug water and almost always kill itself within a couple of weeks. Mm. So there you go, right? That's, that's our story. But in the 1970s, Professor Alexander was looking at these experiments and he said, well, hang on a minute we're putting the rat alone in an empty cage where it's got nothing to do except use these drugs. What would happen if we did this differently? So he built a cage called Rat Park, which is basically like heaven for rats, right? Um, uh, They've got loads of friends, they've got loads of coloured balls, they've got loads of cheese, they can have loads of sex. Anything a rat could want in life, Mm -hmm. they've got in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, the normal water and the drugged water. And this is the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, they don't like the drugged water. They hardly ever use it. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. So they go from almost 100% compulsive use and overdose when they don't have the things that make life meaningful to none when they do have the things that make life meaningful. There's lots of human examples I'm sure we can talk about mm. but, but, uh, and that I've learned about. Um, but To me, the, the core lesson of this is that the heart of addiction is about not wanting to be present in your life because your life is too painful a place to be. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety, the opposite of addiction is connection.
0: Yes, hence your book Lost Connections. Mm -hmm. And I think there was a a quote that uh, stood out to me in your book about this very topic, which was from... One of Billie Holiday's friends, Michelle Wallace, who said people think sometimes people use drugs because they're bad or evil. Sometimes the softest people use drugs because they can't take the pain um, and anguish presumably of everyday life for various reasons. And one of the reasons that you bring up and that has been shown to be an issue in studies is childhood trauma.
2: Yeah, there's this incredible research by a man called Dr Vincent Felitti and I, I found this quite difficult to learn about. Um, I'll tell you the story of how we discovered it because I think it's kind of amazing. And for a minute, you're going to think, why, why is Johan telling me this? What's this got to do with addiction or depression or these subjects? But it, it led to an incredible breakthrough. Mm. So in the mid-1980s, in San Diego, in California, this doctor, Vincent Felitti, is um, given a job to do. Kaiser Permanente, are the big not-for-profit medical provider in that city, and they approached him and they said, look, we don't know what to do. Every year the obesity crisis is getting worse and we're trying loads of things and nothing's working. We're giving people diet plans, they're just getting fatter and fatter, what are we going to do? So they gave him a quite big budget and they said, just do blue skies research, just figure out what the hell we can do. Mm. So Dr. Felitti started to work with 250 extremely obese people, people who weighed more than 400 pounds. And he's interviewing them. And one day he has what seems like, and in some ways is, a quite stupid idea. He said, what would happen if really obese people literally stopped eating and we gave them like vitamin C injections so they didn't get scurvy and we gave them all the things that you need? Mm. Would they just burn through the fat stores in their body and and in fact lose weight and get down to a a normal weight? So they started to do this, obviously with loads of medical supervision. And in one sense it worked. So there's a woman, I'm going to call her Susan, to protect her medical confidentiality, who went down from being more than 400 pounds to 138 pounds it's incredible right her family are telling Dr. Felitti he saved her life she's thrilled and then one day something happened that no one expected she cracked she ran to KFC she starts obsessively eating and Dr. Felitti called her in and he said Susan what, what happened and she looked down she said I don't know I don't know and he said well tell me about that day did anything happen that day Turns out that day something had happened to Susan that had never happened to her. She'd been in a bar and a man had hit on her, not in a predatory or awful way, but a man had expressed sexual interest in her um, and, and she'd felt really frightened. Dr. Felitti said to her then, or I think at a later session, he said, um, Susan, when did you start to put on weight? In her case, it was when she was 11. He said, well, did anything happen when you were 11 that didn't happen when you were 9, didn't happen when you were 13, was there anything that year? And Susan looked down and she said, yeah, that's when my grandfather started to rape me. Dr. Felitti interviewed everyone in the programme. He discovered that 55% of them had put on their extreme weight in the aftermath of being sexually abused, which is obviously much higher than the general population. He's like, what's going on here? Susan explained it to him. She said, overweight is overlooked, and that's what I want to be. That this thing that seemed irrational, and in one sense, of course, is very bad for you, was performing a protective, positive function. Um, But this is a small study, right? It's 250 people. It's such a weird result that Dr. Fisk thinks this can't be right. So he goes to the Centre for Disease Control, the big body that funds medical research in the US, and he got funding to do a massive study. Everyone who came for healthcare to Kaiser Permanente in San Diego over a whole year, um, no matter what for, broken legs, schizophrenia, anything in between, was given a questionnaire. First part of the questionnaire asked... Um, Did any of these 10 bad things happen to you when you were a kid? Things like sexual abuse, physical abuse, neglect. Second part asked, have you had any of these problems as an adult? Things like obesity. And then they added addiction, um, suicide attempts, depression, other things. Mm. When the figures were calculated out by the CDC, people were just astonished. For every category of childhood trauma you experienced, you were two to four times more likely to become depressed or addicted. But when you got into the multiple categories, the figures were remarkable. If you had six of these categories of childhood trauma, you were 3,100% more likely to have attempted suicide and 4,600% more likely to have an addiction problem. It's incredible. And I remember when when I went to meet Dr. Felitti in San Diego, the first time I interviewed him, I remember walking out. He's a really admirable person. If you met him, you would really like him. I remember walking out and feeling full of rage towards him, like almost shaking with anger. And I was thinking, why am I, why am I so angry with this man? What's going on here? And, um, you know, as you know, as you said, my, my, my book, Lost Connections, is about depression and uh, why we're having a depression epidemic. And I go through the nine, the scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression, and. You know, when I was a child, I'd experienced some very extreme acts from an adult in my life. And i had never thought about that as being related to my own depression, which perhaps sounds stupid now. I, I didn't want to think about it. I didn't want to integrate it into my biography. I didn't want to give the mm. power to this individual to think they were still playing out in my life. But... One of the reasons I'm glad I stayed with learning about this is because of actually what Dr. Felitti discovered next. So... When people had indicated on these forms that they had experienced childhood trauma, their doctor was told, next time they come in, don't call them back, but next time they come in, um, say to them something like this, I see that when you were a child you were sexually abused or whatever the nature of the abuse was. I'm really sorry that happened. That should never have happened to you. Mm. Would you like to talk about it? About 40% of people said, I don't want to talk about it. But most people did want to talk about it, and they wanted to talk about it for an average of five minutes. And then it was random, randomly assigned. Some of them got told, you can talk about it with a therapist. I can refer you on to a therapist if you want. What was incredible was just that five minutes of an authority figure saying, I'm so sorry, this should never have happened to you, mm. that alone led to a really significant fall in problems like depression. And the people who were then referred on to a therapist had an even bigger fall. Um, and what this tells us is part of a growing body of evidence from people like Professor James Pennebaker, it's, it's not the trauma that destroys you. It's the shame about the trauma. And if you give people safe places to release that trauma, exactly what Billie Holiday never got, in fact, she got the opposite, she got shame, punishment, um, more aggression, abuse from the, the state, um, then, then, then that, that, that is an anti-addiction policy, that is an anti-depression policy. And I thought about that a lot, funnily enough, here in Melbourne. Um, yesterday I met an incredible woman, in, who some of your listeners will know her, a woman called Judy Ryan. Um, so Judy Ryan moved back to Richmond in 2012, and there was a lot of chaotic street use in, in Richmond at that time. Um, near her street, a woman collapsed between some, well, between some cars, was, was using, and, and had um, injected herself and had hit an artery and actually bled to death in, in, in the street. And this woman had young children... And what tends to happen in areas where there's chaotic street use and there's a proposal for something that would actually reduce those deaths and help those people like a supervised injection site is generally the local people say, no, we don't want it here, we don't want these disgusting people, blah, 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 you imagine the terms they use. Um, We don't want them here, get it out of here. Judy Ryan um, did the exact opposite. She said, we absolutely should have a supervised injection site here, these are our friends, these are our neighbours, these are people who need help. Um, And with another group of incredible people in Richmond, they formed a group to campaign for a supervised injection site in their area. Mm. And they went door to door. They persuaded people. They appealed to people's sense of goodness and decency and kindness. Um, And they succeeded. They got a supervised injection site, opened 11 weeks ago. It's already saved lots of people's lives. It will save I've been to supervised injection sites all over the world. The scientific evidence is overwhelming. They save people's lives. They help them turn their lives around. And to me, that's such an extraordinary model. I don't know anywhere else in the world other than Melbourne where there were people who did that. Mm. These people are just uh, heroic. And it's, again, a sign that, you know, I know you think about this a lot as well, Amy, that at the moment in the world, your listeners don't need me to remind them... events are being defined by people who appeal to the absolute worst in us to hatred, fear and rage and I think what what happened here in Melbourne is a beautiful kind of counter song to that right it shows Mm -hmm. that also when you appeal to people's love and kindness and decency and capacity for connection um, you can prevail in really extraordinary ways and there's been other examples I'm happy to talk about if you want about here in Australia of some of the most moving and important moments of resistance to the global drug war
0: Yes, well, I would like to talk about compassion and love and care because that's really a big part of the solution and a big reason why some countries who have brought in far more progressive policies than just the punishment as a deterrent model have actually succeeded um, I know there are a couple of countries you've looked into that have made huge strides in terms of dealing with this issue in a totally different way and that does draw on the best elements of humanity, uh, such as that sense of empathy and love and care, and that when you do provide an environment of stability, care and controlled use, that some people who are addicted to drugs can come around to the position that they don't really need those drugs anymore.
2: Yeah, I think the most people, even quite conservative people who are naturally kind of, you know, authority and law and order minded, can see that what we've done hasn't worked, right? It's just so obvious. Um, but understandably, they are, there's a general public mood which is what we've done hasn't worked, but what's the alternative? I think too often, the alternatives to discuss... We'll say, what's the alternative to war on drugs? We talk about it like we're at a philosophy seminar, and we go, well, how would that work? What would we do? And we talk in this very abstract way. And I I was like, oh, right, there are, in fact, countries that have done this. I'll just go there and see what happened. So I'll give you an example. In the year 2000... Portugal had one of the worst drug problems in the world 1% of the population was addicted to heroin Which is remarkable And every year they tried the American way more Arrested more people, punished more people, shamed more people And every year the problem got worse And one day the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition Got together and said look we can't go on like this What are we going to do? So they decided to do something really radical Something nobody had done in more than 70 years They said Shall we, like, ask some scientists what we should do? (laughs) So they set up a panel of scientists and doctors led by an amazing man I got to know called Dr. Hua Gulao. And they said to them, you guys go away, figure out what would solve this problem, look at all the evidence, and we've agreed in advance we'll do whatever you recommend. So the panel went away, looked at Rat Park, loads of other pieces of scientific evidence, and came back and said, decriminalise all drugs from cannabis to crack, the whole lot, but, and this is the crucial next step, take all the money we currently spend on screwing people's lives up, shaming them, arresting them, trying them, imprisoning them, which is incredibly expensive, take all that money and spend it instead on turning their lives around. And it was a mixture of things. Some of it was rehab, some of it was psychological support. Most of it was about very practically changing people's lives. For example, say you used to be a mechanic... They'll go to a garage, they'll say, if you employ this guy for a year, we'll pay half his wages, much cheaper than sending him to prison. Um, The goal was to say to every person with an addiction problem in Portugal, we love you, we value you, we're on your side, we want you back. Um, By the time I went to Portugal, it had been in place for 13 years and the results were in. According to the best research in the British Journal of Criminology, um, addiction was massively down. Overdose deaths were massively down. HIV transmission was massively down. Street crime was massively down. Mm. And one of the ways you know it works so well is that virtually nobody in Portugal wants to go back. Um, I went and interviewed a man called Juan Figuera who led the opposition to the decriminalization at the time. He was the top drug cop in Portugal. And he said, you know, understandably, he said, surely if we decriminalize all drugs, we're gonna have a huge increase in drug use. We're gonna have a huge increase in children using drugs. We have all sorts of problems. Mm. And he said to me, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other side said would happen did. And he talked about how he felt really ashamed that he'd spent so many years prior to the decriminalisation making people's lives worse when he could have been making people's lives better. And I think this is something we... This is a, a shift in the debate we have to have. What we've been doing up to now, what you guys have been doing in Australia, what we've been doing in my country, is we've been copying the places that have failed disastrously. Um, everywhere in the world and I went to many of the places where policies are built around shame and stigma and punishment addiction problems get worse I went out with a group of women in Arizona for my book Chasing the Scream who were made to go out on a chain gang wearing t-shirts saying I was a drug addict while members of the public mock them and jeer at them what happens to those women? It's not accurate to say just that that policy doesn't work it makes their addiction worse, they're even more traumatised and more broken when they get out Everywhere in the world where they have moved to policies based on regulation, order, love and compassion. It's not a silver bullet. They've still got problems in Portugal and Switzerland, but there is a massive improvement such a massive improvement so for example Switzerland um, legalised heroin for people with addiction problems um, it's given to them in a clinic since then there have been zero heroin overdose deaths not one huge full recovery. strict heroin. Swiss people are really conservative my dad's yeah. from there so you know, I know the country pretty well and <coughs> my Swiss relatives make Donald Trump look like Gandhi and, um, <laughs> and, 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 and yet once Swiss people had seen this in practice they had a referendum 70% of them voted to keep heroin legal just cuz they saw this they just saw the fallen crime was so big right mm. and they, so this is this is a pattern i've seen all over the world um, when people propose reforms when it comes to drugs at first it is extremely controversial and then people see it in practice
0: yeah
2: and the controversy go, i mean uh, i'll give you a, a, an amazing example from here in australia i think i think this is perhaps one of the perhaps the most heroic moment in the resistance to global drug war certainly in the top 5 In the mid-1980s, in Sydney and King's Cross, there was a doctor called Alex Wodak, uh, who was starting to see patients with HIV, AIDS. Um, So it was clear by then it was a blood-borne problem, and it was also clear, therefore, it was going to disproportionately affect two groups, gay men and, and injecting drug users. They knew what to do about gay men, although, of course, there were people who said, don't do it, Uh, these are disgusting perverts, you know, all the terrible things that people said. Mm. It's been written out of history now, but people really said maybe it's good if they all die, they're all perverts, maybe this is God's judgment, quite mainstream people said this. Um, But we knew what to do about gay men. You distribute condoms and you have public health information. No one knew what to do about injecting drug users. Mm. And Dr. Wodak one day had an idea. He was working with an amazing group of nuns and with some nurses. He said, maybe we should hand out clean needles Um, This was illegal in Australia at the time. He said, maybe we should hand out clean needles and we should tell people about that it's transmitted in the blood. And um, so they just went and bought a load of syringes with their own money and they started handing them out. And they explained it to drug users and drug users themselves started handing them out. Incredible drug user activism. And at the time, there's a massive scandal about it, right? Yeah. People say this man is facilitating drug use. These people don't care about their lives anyway. They they want to die. That's why they're addicts. They're not going to use clean needles. It's a ridiculous. You're just promoting. You're just making it easier for people to, to be junkies is the phrase they would have used. Mm. Um The police come to see Dr. Wodak and they said, you've got to stop doing this, you're breaking the law. And Dr. Wodak said, but do you understand this? This is an epidemic that will spread out. Even if you don't care about injecting drug users, and you should, this is an epidemic that will spread out from them through the country. He had four young children. He said, do you understand this? HIV, AIDS could become endemic in Australia, as it in fact has done in countries that didn't do this, places like um, Kenya and other countries. He said, we've... If we don't, this is our one chance to stop an epidemic. Mm. And the police said, look, we, you seem like a nice man, but we have to enforce the law. They kept threatening to arrest him. He would have lost his medical licence. Um, in the end, he's called to see the Minister of Health. The Minister of Health says, you've got to stop doing this. Um, and Alex said, no, I'm not going to stop doing this. And as he, when he left the meeting, he got into the lift and the public health advisor got in behind. He'd been silent in the meeting. And the public health advisor just said to him quietly, whatever you do, don't stop. Because of this incredible moment of courage by Dr. Wodak and all the people in King's Cross, the drug user activists, the nuns, the nurses, um, many amazing people there, that was one of the first pieces of evidence we had in the world that distributing clean needles saves people's lives, it prevented an epidemic here in Australia. Um, and that then spread across the world, that model. Mm. If, if it hadn't been for that incredible courage here in Australia, that model may well never have spread. Certainly it would have spread later, and many more people would have died of AIDS, um, mm. injecting drug users and others. And to me, that's, a, again, a, a great Australian model. Because, you know, Australians are pragmatic people. This is not a moralistic society. Um, Australians, I think, are compassionate people when they're appealed to in the right way. Judy Ryan's amazing work here in Melbourne has shown that. Um, I think this is a place that could really be one of the breaks in the chain in the global global drug war. There are very few... It's very striking to me. Whenever I come to Australia and I do media, the producers always say... I always get a producer who says something like, who can we get to be the other side of the debate? Because mm. they can't find anyone who will go on television and defend the policy that your government is enforcing. That's a sign of how hollow the Australian war on drugs is, that no yeah. one will come on TV and defend it, right? Yes. And yet... Every day it continues to arrest people who are really vulnerable, continues to imprison people, Mm. continues to leave drugs in the hands of armed criminal gangs. That is a sign that people listening to this programme can tear down this, this war on drugs. And there's really important activism happening here and I really urge people to look up Greg Chip's organisation, Drug Policy Australia, I really urge people to look up the fantastic work that Uniting Church in, in Canberra has become the first church in the world to call for full decriminalisation of drugs, an amazing moment I was just there meeting with them in Canberra mm. there's wonderful groups like Unharm there's a Judy's amazing group um, in Richmond, there, there's amazing work happening all over Australia, I'm just saying if you're listening to this programme and you are frustrated sign up for those organisations now, you can tear this thing, thing down Mm. Every person who joins that fight, it will end sooner. And every day we we bring it closer is a day we save huge numbers of people's lives, just like Dr. Wodak and the amazing people he worked with in Kings Cross saved enormous numbers of people's lives.
0: Yes. And it just does remind me that in the history of the war on drugs, doctors knew that this punishment approach... ...doesn't work and they knew particularly in the case of cannabis that it didn't have the effects that people were so concerned about such as extreme violence. Uh, We know nowadays that there are some of those newer drugs that do affect people's behaviour in a range of ways... And that there are medical professionals on the front line seeking to treat and help those who've become addicted to drugs, but are really hamstrung in what they can do for these people and, of course, would be concerned for their health and their well-being. There would be parts of society already who certainly would support a different way of approaching this issue, but as we know, it is very difficult to get politicians to take a step up and to have the courage to do something that's really quite radical to certain parts of any society.
2: I think there's, I it's really well put, Amy, and I think there's two things I think about in relation to that. So one is, I'm gay. I'm 39, and I have seen things I never dreamed would happen, right? I recently showed one of my nephews who's 17 the things that were on the front pages of British newspapers about gay people when I was the age he is now, and he literally couldn't believe it. He said, did anyone call the police? That was how... Because the world has changed so much in 20 years. Thankfully. I I, I don't think I even heard the concept of gay marriage until Mm -hmm. I was 20 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it's important to say, every politician is constantly making a calculation... If I take this step, how much praise will I get and how much crap will I get, right? And at the moment, the balance is they'd get a little bit of praise from people like us and a whole lot of crap from the Telegraph and all these other places. Yeah. Um, but that balance can change, right? Yes. They were making that calculation about gay people 20 years ago, when no, one, you know, which is why there were lots of anti-gay policies. And then what happened? A lot of brave gay people and a lot of brave straight people persuaded the people around them mm. using love and compassion and humour and all sorts of things... And ordinary people changed their minds, and that changed the calculation that politicians made. But um, it also makes me think about... And this will sound a bit weird if I say it, but actually, in Australia, you guys have a higher degree of agreement about what the goals of drug policy should be than a lot of other policies. So if you stopped in the street a Pauline Hansen voter and a Green voter, and you said to them, OK, if we were starting from scratch with drugs, making the laws about drugs... What do we want to achieve with those laws, right? Almost everyone would say, your Pauline Hansen person, your green person would say, I think, well, we don't want people to become addicted. We don't want people to die. We don't want kids to use drugs, right? Actually, there's a very high degree of agreement about those goals, right? We all want those three goals, right? That's not true of a lot of things. If you said to somebody, what's the goal of tax policy... I would say, well, you want a more equal society, you want to discourage pollution, all sorts of things. Mm. A lot of perfectly reasonable people would say, no, that's, that's not what we want. He said, what's the goal of immigration policy? There'd be really big disagreements. Yeah. Actually, there's an extremely high degree of agreement about what we want to achieve with drug policy. The disagreement is about how we get there. And I think once you reframe it that way, and you explain to people... You're not wrong to be afraid about some of these things. You're right to be afraid. There are risks and dangers as long as positive aspects of drug use. Um, But what we need to do is look at, okay, where where have people... What are the effects of these things? Because we have tried... The one thing you can say in defence of the war on drugs is we've given it a fair shot, right? The United States has done it for 100 Mm. years. They've spent a trillion dollars. They've killed... Hundreds of thousands of their own citizens. They've killed. They've imprisoned millions of people. They've destroyed whole countries like Colombia. And at the end of that, they can't even keep drugs out of their prisons, where they pay loads of guards to walk around the perimeter the whole time, which gives you a sense of how well that strategy, the fantasy that, and and again, it plays recurs here in Australia. This fantasy of the New South Wales Premier saying the solution to these people dying is just. We'll just ban the music festival. Is there, is there one person, is there literally one person who thinks those people won't just go to another music festival? Yes, yeah. I mean, it's it, where they'll also be able to get hold of drugs. It's, it's, it's ludicrous. She, she can't mean what she's saying, right? Um, but that's someone who's afraid of the alternatives. Um, and that's why we need to do a better goal of explaining what the alternatives mean, you know, which is not to do a kind of big philosophy seminar. It's to say... Here's a plane ticket to Geneva. Here's a plane ticket to Lisbon. You know, let let me tell you what these places are like. Let me tell you what happened there or Colorado or Uruguay or the many places that I went to that pursued um, drug policy reform.
0: Yes. I know you have to go, so I'll just close it out. Um, You make an excellent point about the fact that this is really driven by the populations, the people. Portugal, thankfully, did have leadership, political leadership, but same-sex marriage here was achieved because a resounding majority of Australians had come to the position through huge amounts of campaigning by activist groups that, of course, people should be able to marry whoever they like. So I, I just think that's a really empowering thing that you've pointed out, that... Any change can happen with the strength, effort and determination of individuals, regular Australians, people listening to this show. Um, anything can actually um, change. Th-
2: things that seem completely impossible. So in Lost Connections, I write, when I get pessimistic about this, I think about a friend of mine. Um, so um, I have a friend called Andrew Sullivan, is an America a British-American journalist. And in 1994, at the height of the AIDS crisis, Andrew was diagnosed as HIV positive. This is before we had protease inhibitors or anything. And um, loads of his friends were dying. And Andrew decides to go to this little place called Provincetown in Cape Cod to die. And and he's there, and he decides he's going to write a book. It's going to be the first book proposing a really utopian, radical idea, an idea no one's ever written a book about. That idea was gay marriage, right? And he thought... I'm not going to live to see this. No one alive now is going to live to see this. Maybe somewhere down the line someone's Mm. going to pick up this book, right? When I get pessimistic, I just imagine going back in time and saying to Andrew in 1994 in his little house in Provincetown, okay, you're not going to believe me, but 25 years from now, firstly, you're going to be alive. He would have been incredulous. Secondly, you're going to be married to a man. (laughs) Thirdly, I'm going to be with you when the the Supreme Court um, makes a ruling that it's mandatory for every US state to introduce gay marriage and they're going to quote this book that you're writing now and the next day you're going to be invited to celebrate in a White House that will be lit up in the colours of the rainbow flag oh and by the way the president who's going to invite you to celebrate Mm. that he's going to be black Right? That would have sounded like the most ludicrous. I'm saying, so, but we're saying to Amy, 25 years from now, a transgender president is going to invite us to smoke crack with her in the Oval Office. right? <laughs> Not that that's what we want. I mean, the transgender president, yes, the, the crack, no. Um, it would have seemed ludicrous. It would have seemed like science fiction, right? Yeah. But it happened. Andrew lived to see it. Well,
0: that's and good too.
2: Exactly. So we need to remember we are all the beneficiaries of reforms mm-hmm. that seem utopian. When Australians were the first people in the world to propose the weekend... That was a crazy utopian idea. I mean, you don't need me to mansplain this to you. But, you know, when my grandmothers were the age that I am now, they weren't allowed to have bank accounts because they got married, right? Their husband had to have the bank account. Mm. Um, So we're all the beneficiaries of incredible progressive changes that seemed ludicrous and impossible at the start. And because people fought for them and didn't give up and didn't let themselves be discouraged, um, our lives have been transformed.
0: Johan, you are so inspiring and your passion is infectious and I just absolutely appreciate the time that you've taken and also how much... This clearly means to you as an issue, and you've contributed so much already. and I just thank you for continuing to do that, it's really great.
2: Oh, thank you so much, Amy. I really enjoyed it. Cheers. And um, anyone who wants any more information about um, the book about drugs can go to www.chasingthescream.com. Anyone who wants more information about the book about depression can go to www.thelostconnections.com.
0: Yes, and listen to our interview and chat about Hooray. lost connections. Thanks so much again.
2: Oh, thanks, Amy.
0: You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR-FM in Melbourne, Australia. You are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3RRR-FM. This is Amy Mullins, and I'm taking you through till noon. As I said before, I'm really pleased to have with me philosopher and author Anne Mann with me in the studio and uh, Anne has written a range of pieces recently around a similar topic, um, a really important topic uh, which is about caregiving and, uh, and particularly women and their role in caregiving that has been solidified and uh, really... It's almost immovable in terms of our understanding of mothers and uh, and their role in society but we're here to change things so um Anne has written a chapter in a book mothers and the quest for social justice from the universal breadwinner to the universal caregiver regime and that book is dangerous ideas about motherhood uh, and it is a, a a book full of a range of authors, some really fascinating women, but I welcome Anne Mann to talk to me about it. Hi there. Hi, Amy. Hi, and thank you for coming in and giving us your time. I really do
3: appreciate it. Oh, it's lovely to be with you again.
0: It is, yes. And I really enjoyed our last chat, which was, um, you know, about the measurement of GDP and uh, how caregiving is so not even vaguely understood or measured in a way, of our productivity and our wealth. And, you know, I also find it fascinating that we constantly talk about women's workforce participation and, oh, if you had this many more women participating in the workforce, they would contribute this many billion dollars to the GDP, somehow suggesting that these women are sitting about at home, chilling out, not doing much and that, you know, we've valorized this idea of full-time work and and women m- juggling it all and caring and working at the same time. It's a lot less glamorous than that and there are a lot of people doing it really tough particularly at those end where mothers, single mothers, as you say, are dependent on government assistance. And that's where some of the biggest um, disadvantage is seen. Um, first of all, I'd just like to ask you, in, I guess, the history of Australia, there have been some pivotal moments where we've seen positive steps towards supporting mothers and their role as caregivers and also recognising just how much they do do um, and contribute to society in that role? Yes, well
3: in 1973, uh, Gough Whitlam bought in a single mother's payment and that was a watershed moment really in the um, history of motherhood in Australia, or uh, the history of maternalism because for the first time women were paid an inadequate but small wage for caring for a child and that was a really decisive development because instead of uh, as um, previous to that moment women being forced to give children up uh, often in the most brutal ways to adoption uh, being shamed as single mothers having absolutely no um, uh, method of support if they didn't have the um, inverted commons respectability of marriage um, they were in an absolutely parlous economic situation so the single mothers enabled uh, women to um, be able to breastfeed a baby when they uh, were on their own. They, it enabled them um, to have a small income um, and it certainly didn't prevent them from going into the workforce but gave them a transitional uh, kind of income. Mm. And it was my hope at that time, I have to say, I was uh, the child of a uh, single mother um, who, through divorce but who we now describe... Um, all those who are uh, non-partnered as single mothers and uh, she uh, struggled enormously after um, a mental illness and a time in a psychiatric hospital and then um, to come to a country town and try and find employment and when uh, that was in the 60s and when I saw this um, transformation under Gough Whitlam I thought fantastic we are now going to start supporting mothers however unfortunately history took a different turn. Uh, And that different turn was that by the 80s, we were taking what I call the great leap forward into neoliberalism. And that, um, I'm sure your listeners know what I'm speaking about, but just to run through it, the idea that markets um, are God, um, that everything can be determined by the market more efficiently than by any other means, that you reduce government expenditure, that if you give Tax cuts, um, the most important ones, are going to be to business, um, that you um, have uh, the uh, removal or decimation of unions so that you don't have union power, um, holding up wages, um, and all kinds of working conditions are uh, done by via enterprise bargaining, one individual to one employer. So, uh, for all of these reasons, we now find ourselves in 2018 with, instead of the trajectory being a really positive one from that 1973 moment, um, and uh, you know, developing it into a parenting allowance, to bearing it in, in, developing it into an understanding that this is really important, crucial caregiving work for the society. We have actually um, now stigmatized, shamed, um, and put into poverty many um, single mothers and sole parents. Mm. So in many ways, we've taken a step backwards. Yes. Yes, I believe so. And I think that the key moment um, is that move into neoliberalism. And I think we often confuse uh, neoliberalism and feminism. So what I I say that it's um, neoliberalism is, uh, you know, sort of being cast as, uh, you know, it's really a wolf in um, feminist sheep clothing, you know, know, so that the... Both movements, both the feminist movement and the neoliberal economic movement, had as a key goal paid work. Now, understandably, for all of those um, uh, mothers who were housewives or who are, you know, who were prevented from uh, even holding down a job if they're in the public service or if uh, women i know who are old enough to remember um, had to resign from their the bank they were working at if they married and uh, all women were asked in job interviews so what are your intentions with respect to motherhood and so on so there was a an the old regime was extraordinarily unfair to the capacity of women to have economic independence which of course is so important Um, but uh, it, it is also the case that that um, old regime hasn't translated into something which both supports their caregiving and also mm-hmm. supports them, gives them the necessary supports to actually achieve that kind of economic independence. So if feminism's idea, based around social justice, of economic independence, which would be something like free universal Um, high quality childcare. It would be shared care giving between men and women. Um, It would be small community centres rather than the big mega um, corporate childcare um, chains and so on. Um, That model has been really cast aside for the neoliberal model, which is um, childcare and aged care for profit and we're currently mm. seeing um, in the media, you know, some of the terrible stories um, that are happening um, to old people in, in, in nursing homes. Um, and it the ideal of full-time labour, full-time paid work, and that has become something of a kind of sacred, an unquestionable sacred. And if you're not in full-time paid work, what's wrong with you? Whereas, you know, I would flip that um, whole idea on its head and say, actually, you need to look at what those people are actually doing and what they're doing is really invaluable to the whole society caregiving you know so we we've lost the idea of a small wage being paid to those who are um, parenting and we've also lost the idea i mean whatever happened to this no child should be in poverty which was Mm. the mantra of the Hawke government so now under the auspices of you know, we're doing women a favour by forcing them into paid work. We have removed the parenting um, payments. We have cut all kinds of um, allowances to them. And what we've found is many of those um, single mothers, especially, are uh, in uh, dire poverty.
0: That's such a great point. And I think what was really um, sad is what how you open your story in terms of... Um, some of the changes that the Gillard government brought in, um, you write that on the 9th of October 2012, that that day that Julia Gillard delivered her justly famous anti-misogyny speech, her government passed the Social Security Legislation Amendment Fair Incentives to Work Act of 2012, which... uh, really critically meant that from the 1st of January 2013 recipients of the parenting payment which as you say is mainly uh, single mothers would cease to receive that um, when their youngest child turned uh, eight if you're a single parent or uh, six if you are a partnered parent um, and they were moved on to New Start, which as we know is hasn't been changed for so long, uh, is not even close to a living income at all um, and is just so grossly uh, underfunded that uh, it barely does represent what it should have been, which was a social safety net. But one would question why Julia Gillard would move um, mothers from this uh, parenting payment, which is recognising parenting and caregiving, onto a job seeker Allowance, which is an, a completely different payment. That, is that really highlighting there that neoliberalism tension? Uh,
3: absolutely. I mean, it, uh, the, that and all the subsequent policies where um, the, uh, what Gillard established has been continued by uh, successive uh, liberal um, governments, coalition governments. Um, the, essentially, the idea is that a job is the best welfare. Now, that's all very well. But as the cases that I begin my essay with show, uh, many of these women are already working. It's just that they, about 60% of them are working. But yeah. they're working often at low-paid jobs and jobs which are based around um, a children's, a children's need for care. Mm. So... Um, some of the uh, cases I give are, um, let me take um, two. One was a woman who um, uh, who went to the Blue Mountains and uh, she went there because of rent. Many sole parents have fled capital cities to find affordable rent in mm-hmm. country towns. The country town where I spent part of my childhood in Bendigo um, has a very large single mother population. And it is understandable if you Think about what, just for one second, what Sydney or Melbourne rents But that, of course, means a smaller um, uh, set of opportunities for employment, or it means very long commutes to somewhere where there is employment,
0: and an expensive commute,
3: and an expensive commute. So, uh, the the, um, the woman Katrina Ray in the blue um, the Blue Mountains that I was talking about. Uh, actually ended up getting pneumonia um, and falling extremely ill when she had children to care for Mm. because of this. She was working two jobs, um, very long hours, uh, and already doing it tough in a um, rented house with, you know, just one little bar heater to keep them warm in sub-zero temperatures in winter. Um, And another case was that of Harper. And uh, the case of Harper came from um, Petra Buskin's very interesting work on universal basic income um, for the Green Institute. And she pointed out that Harper and many other single mothers like her um, are actually taking to the road to leave... Uh, with energy prices and rent places like Melbourne and travelling north and uh, travelling where it's warm in the winter, um, where camping out at showgrounds, find another community of other mothers mm-hmm. who were kind of um, economic refugees if you like from the south um, and as uh, Buskin says it's, you know, let's not kid ourselves this is actually homelessness with, with benefits. Um, so the plight of um, sole parents are not only in particular stories but um, we, we have quite a lot of economic modelling which has shown that the changes to the parenting payment have actually pushed them into poverty. So I guess for this book, you know, Dangerous Ideas About Mothers, mm. um, I was asked originally to write... Um, uh, an essay on the ethic of care which I've done um, quite a lot of work on thinking about what kind of ethic of care we have for vulnerable people whether it's people with a disability children old people you know how do we incorporate that um, as a legitimate and honourable part of everyone's life but also the the society Um, but I decided in this instance because I'm becoming have been becoming increasingly alarmed by the way sole parents are stigmatised, as lazy, as drug-addled, as promiscuous, as, you know, um, deadbeat moms essentially, um, when, in fact, the, so many, like my own mother's story, but so many of the um, people I know and so many of, of those, uh, when you delve into the issue, are stories of quiet heroism. Um, an extraordinary resilience and an ethic of care produced under the most um, difficult of circumstances. Circumstances Mm. that we should not be allowing. Um, So ethic of care, I decided to flip and say on its head and say, well, what about the ethic of care we are providing for mothers, for all mothers, but in particular these vulnerable mothers? And my answer was, you know, we are not providing any kind of ethic of care. And so then the rest of the essay is an analysis of exactly what's gone wrong Mm -hmm. and how we might
0: remedy it. Well, there certainly isn't any ongoing ethic of care. There's not even really a conversation about whether we should be providing care to those who care for others. Um, And one of the things that I um, am particularly disappointed about is that the introduction of um, maternity leave, paid parental leave was really focused on women. It wasn't focused on um, the which I also hate this terminology, primary caregiver versus secondary caregiver, because apparently they're tiered and men Mm. and women must, you know, divvy it up unequally. Um, But also that it was a minimum wage for um, a person of only 18 weeks. And it was just, that was it. That's all you got. Like, and, and it was kind of hailed as some major achievement and I guess in a way it was because we didn't have any but it certainly wasn't a good solution because superannuation wasn't included and therefore women are retiring on you know far lesser retirement incomes than men. What what are your thoughts in terms of that development? Because the Gillard government then brought that in and obviously wanted to take a lot of credit for doing something that they think is supporting mothers.
3: Yes. Well, just to preface my remarks on um, paid parental leave, it's just as you say, superannuation. Because that's a contributory system, it means that anyone who has Apache. Um, uh, participation in the workforce, which invariably means mothers or um, adult daughters who Mm. move out of the workforce in order to care for an elderly parent. Um, And the last time I looked around at the um, carers of the elderly, I see almost entirely adult daughters. (laughs) Um, So leaving work early, for example, in order to um, care for a a parent who's now um, dependent. And what we find is that uh, significant numbers of women, older women, are now homeless because of their careless, uh, their caring um, uh, activities, uh, and our carelessness towards them, and that women in uh, retire with far less um, retirement benefits. And yet, our impetus in our thinking about uh, retirement and old age is that you provide for yourself. In fact, the thinking throughout all of this is you provide for yourself. But what it's not acknowledging is what happens to people who are responding to the very particular care needs um, of their children. Mm. Which brings me to the paid parental leave. Now, because we came from a base of nothing, it might seem very generous to get 18 weeks of paid parental leave. But if, as I have been... Tracking Scandinavian policies for a very long time, um, it it is extraordinarily pathetic. Um, I'd also say, as a mother of now two adult children, um, eighteen weeks? Are you kidding? You know, do you you seriously think that caregiving (laughs) responsibilities end uh, in uh, you know just um, a little blip in the first year of of a baby's life? Mm. Um, It's about twenty years of dependency. Uh, Sometimes more. Sometimes more, yes, definitely sometimes more. Um, And so this idea that that somehow fixed it all, um, it it became a policy which was too freighted with a sense of the solution to all of the work and family um, uh, problems. And I noticed that John Howard, bless him, (laughs) said that work and family were um, a barbecue stopper Um, which I suppose meant that his daughter Melanie was perhaps having some difficulties, I'm not sure, but whatever the case, he raised this as something that's happening all across Australian families. Now, whatever happened to that? It's as if, yeah. you know so. The problem of the symbolics around a, sh- a brief period of parental le- paid parental leave is that it's um, you know that that's that stops is the conversation. The uh, just to give a few examples, um, I've come on this program earlier in the year and talked about the huge contribution women make mm-hmm. um, to uh, in their unpaid work to GDP. Um, it's not recognised as part of GDP, but it actually constitutes if you. Um, cash out, even at a minimum rate, all the hours um, and all the work that they do, at about 43% of the value of GDP, larger than any other sector. So we consistently have policies whereby we make decisions and we don't take account of this huge uh, contribution to the economy. It is essentially treated as nothing. And because it's treated as nothing, it means that this Um, inverted commas, unproductive, inverted commas, inactive, (laughs) these inactive citizens um, can then just be deployed into the workforce. Mm. So the model of the welfare bludger has crept in in the most destructive way towards, um, I think, all those who are doing a lot of care work, um, but especially towards um, single mothers. So in Scandinavia, they have so many policies um, uh, sick days for children, for example, so that you can take a day off work. Uh, in Sweden, they have um, days of um, a, shorter, uh, a shorter working day so that you can finish at 4pm. Um, you can uh, have much longer parental leave and then you can choose to go on to a parenting allowance. So in Finland, they have a choice between a parenting allowance and um, using uh, very inexpensive childcare. Uh, but their tax base is much larger. So they are putting their money where their mouth is on this question, whereas the mantra of the neoliberals has been self-sufficiency, look after yourself. And in a way, a lot of the what we called, or used to call the mummy wars are about individualising guilt when actually the solutions are social, they are organisational and they are um, profoundly economic. Yes, and government-led. They have to be government-led. And we have to as a community shift the idea that it is solely women's labour and they have to be either self-sacrificing or superwomen or Mm. somehow sort it out um, themselves uh, and bear... The problems, you know, on their own skin. So we actually have to shift. Um, in the in the in the essay, I uh, try and uh, uh, offer a conceptual framework for what we've been doing. And the conceptual framework is that we are, have been trying to establish under neoliberalism, or not we, but the um, especially the head honchos of the liberal party, yes. um, all male, yeah. um, have been trying to establish. Um, a universal breadwinner regime so that everyone essentially can pay for themselves. They pay for themselves in old age. They pay for themselves um, except for a small period of parental leave um, uh, during the uh, really time-consuming early child-rearing years. They pay for themselves um, in in if they have major problems in their family like mental illness or disability. Um, And that has now shown to be a completely faulty model. If you're serious about um, equality, if you're serious about social justice for mothers, for all caregivers, um, you need to shift the paradigm. That's the paradigm we've been working under. And that paradigm, um, if you have uh, single mothers trooping off to Queensland and sleeping at a showground and having a shower every other day in order... To survive with a small child, that is not working. That is so not working. Um, if you have older women who have um, given their lives to care of others, impoverished or homeless, that is not working. Um, if you have people just because they have a child with a disability, mm. not able to work and um, thrown into poverty and um, you know just struggling day after day, that's not working. So we need a very different kind of regime. And so what I decided to do was to get a bit radical and offer a radical alternative, which I call the universal caregiver regime. Excellent.
0: Um, and I know I said off air that when I was reading this book, uh, it just spoke to me as being very subversive in an excellent way because that's what needs to happen in order to really challenge in a in a strong concerted way, all of the stereotypes and biases and norms that have been constructed, often without even our slight awareness. I mean, some people have more of a gender lens than others going through their lives, but it is quite shocking to see just how pervasive this influence is on our economic lives. Um, and you raise an excellent point around you know neoliberalism and the universal breadwinner because even our superannuation system was set up with men in mind as being, well, of course, this person will work across their whole lifetime and then they will end up with a large nest egg of which, of course, will support them with a bit of a pension in older life. And it clearly needs to change. Reform should have happened a long time ago. And just adding a low income super contribution isn't going to fix this problem. So let's move into your radical solution because it's really important to get this going yes. again, um, is about what would a universal caregiver um, regime look like in an Australian context, in a in a context that did see Gough Whitlam, for example, already championing some of these ideas?
3: Well, I begin that section of my essay with uh, a... A, a little fantasy which is that someone comes in uh, to a job interview and they have a really excellent cv and there's a panel of people confronting them and um, assessing whether they're suitable for the job uh, and this bright spark is sitting before them and he notices that they're all shaking their heads and shuffling their papers and something's gone wrong And so the chair of the board assessing him starts speaking and says, Look, this is all very well, but I see no evidence of caregiving in your curriculum vitae. I see no Mm -hmm. evidence that you have taken time to care for um, children, for old people. There's no volunteering, there's no soup kitchens, Uh, there's no care of the environment, there's nothing which, and I'm sorry, but a good fit for our organisation is someone who has a strong ethic of care. Now, of course, the fact that for most of us this seems pie in the sky, radical, crazy, um, is that we have become absolutely accustomed to what feminist economists call the care penalty. Mm. That's ingrained in us. We think, and it is partly... Um, it is part of all those misconceptions about gender that women are naturally self-sacrificing that really doesn't matter so much that someone's in poverty Um, it's like all those pictures of the Madonna with her head bowed and uh, that whole self-sacrificing kind of ethos yes it's just
0: an instinct that a mother insists upon carrying out
3: and she Loves to sacrifice. Well, Mm. I say she doesn't, actually. (laughs) I say she's the same as any other human being on the planet Um, and that we shouldn't construct things such that we're expecting great sacrifices. So one of the first things to do in a universal caregiver regime would be to remove the care penalty, which means essentially that as soon as you um, uh, have an interruption to uh, your work life, that you are apologising and bowing and scraping and trying to justify the fact that you've gone out of the workforce. Many women in, say, academia or law will tell me how difficult it is to come into those first interviews um, and when they've had a break from employment and not be able to stake their territory, which is that caregiving has been a valuable activity. It's been a contribution, um, an invaluable one to the society, and now they're ready to make another one, perhaps drawing on um, earlier um, uh, work or, or qualifications. So we partly penalise that far too much. Uh, but then there are many other um, aspects to a universal caregiver regime, and we should stop misidentifying what is really. Um, uh, the new capitalism, uh, uh, neoliberalism, mm. uh, with feminism. So we need to start finding uh, our voices and we need to start um, thinking about, for example, universal basic income, uh, which doesn't discriminate on the basis of uh, your workforce status because it's universally granted. Um, I noticed in the discussions that we've had earlier this year about universal basic income, immediately coming to the fore was... The argument that how is it possible we've constructed a society where some of the most important labour that you will ever do, caring for an old person, caring for someone with a disability or a child, um, is economically penalised. So can Mm. we find another way around that? Uh, But I also think we've got to look really seriously at the policy framework um, that Scandinavia Has um, and recognise that what we have um, is currently pathetic. Uh, It's completely inadequate. And if you genuinely want uh, uh, women to have the possibility of continuing uh, through their lifespan and having access to paid work, you have to stop uh, penalising care and you have to actually reorganise the workforce. Because one of the things that is very clear to me is that, With the decimation of unions, we actually lost an opportunity uh, as women began entering the workforce to really have the kind of collective power to bargain uh, and to establish uh, workforce conditions that make it possible for you to work and and do care. It shouldn't be impossible. It's just that we've constructed and we've benefited, we being the elites have benefited for a very long time by essentially males being what I call in the piece care commanders following the um, Irish feminist um, uh, Kathleen Lynch and women have been seen as the care foot soldiers. So we are now unless someone's very wealthy and they too, uh, being female, um, can be become a, a care commander. Mm-hmm. Um, we expect them to you know pay for just a raft of of services and so on. Whereas if you um, dusted off the idea of uh, not only workplace reform to make it genuinely possible to combine work and and care, uh, but also it is time we took another fresh and determined look at men being caregivers because that's the part that no one seems to be really serious about whereas as you know with this anecdote i started with i am serious i think people um should as part of a whole life be involved with caregiving i don't think anyone gets split off Actually, I don't see, and I think it's a humane thing to do. I think mm. it's a humanising thing. I think it's actually a point of um, honour to look after the vulnerable, and that's what we have to shift. Instead of something that's um, rather shame ridden for men, um, instead of something that is economically penalised, we need to dismantle the economic penalty and we need to uh, start respecting. And honouring uh, those caregiving roles, such that um, uh, they're attractive, but also um, to make it not really possible to say, "Oh, my wife does all of that," or, or somehow offloading um, all the care work. That exactly. you know, that should be. We we've had great shifts in the culture. Like we've just um, voted for gay marriage. Who would have thought? when yeah. I was growing up. Um, and thank goodness we have, but there are great shifts in the culture where a moral quickening can occur. Mm. And so I think now the time for a moral quickening on um, proper redistribution of care work, um, you know, the, the moment is now.
0: I couldn't agree more and man I'm so resoundingly yes to everything you've just said and it does remind me of a wonderful movement in um, the Nordic countries where they call these groups of men looking after their children latte papas because they're all sitting in cafes with their babies talking to other dads who are also being the primary carer at that point in time and That is only because of the policy changes that were made and were government-led and meant that normalising fathers as equal carers was a a real thing, a reality. Um, And I'm going to have to finish it there, but I really appreciate your time today.
3: It has been lovely talking to you.
0: And you. That was Anne Mann, who is a philosopher and author. She has contributed a chapter to a new book called Dangerous Ideas About Mothers. And uh, this chapter is absolutely worth reading in full, as well as the others. Um, It's called Mothers and the Quest for Justice. From the universal breadwinner to the universal caregiver regime. This has been a podcast from 3 RR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? check out our website at rrr.org.au